Censorship is the strongest drive in human nature. Sex is a weak second. Do you ever find yourself censoring yourself? Not saying what you feel or believe in case it's disapproved of? Or in case you get it wrong? Are the questions you're nervous about posing ideas you're nervous about questioning? This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and my answer to those questions is yes, yes, and yes. In this episode, we are examining the counterculture of ideas. Not just ideas about music, drugs, gender, politics, fashion, food, spirituality, hairstyles, the environment that emerged in the 50s, 60s and 70s, but ideas that have run counter to the culture throughout history. Ideas and words and images that have been considered by those in power in the culture to be subversive, taboo, forbidden, dangerous. And my guest today, Eric Berkowitz, a human rights lawyer and journalist, has just published a terrific book, Dangerous Ideas, a brief history of censorship in the West from the ancients to fake news. It's the latest in his works on history and the law. And in case you're thinking, hmm, history, law, sounds a little dull, fear not, for this book, this episode of the Bureau of Lost Culture, is filled with stories, human stories, sometimes comical, sometimes moving, often alarming. And for me, this book really helped to bring some clarity into this fog, some solid ground into the marsh that we seem to be wandering around in, or I seem to be wandering around in anyway. Ideas about wokeness, cancel culture, deplatforming, defunding. Reactionary invective, whether it be from the left or the right. And also, it's a terrific read. So, I'm very pleased to welcome the author, Eric Berkowitz. Hello, Eric. Thanks for having me. You're an author, you're a human rights lawyer, you're a journalist, right? You've got a legal practice which is devoted to poor and refugees particularly asylum seekers. Yeah. Uh, I did read that you've never lost an asylum case. So the very, my very first question to you really is, how do you fit it all in? What's the secret? If you talk to my wife, she would say he doesn't fit it in. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, I made a decision about 20 years ago. I had mm -hmm. a, a legal practice devoted, I was basically a hatchet man for large companies. And, and uh, you know, that was remunerative, certainly, but you would go home at the end of a day and say, okay, what exactly have I done today? Right. So sometime when I was able to do it, I decided that um, my real calling was, you know, to write, and I've always been um, consumed with history. And then as, you know, so much of my writing has been really a portion or let's say inspired by or, or, or informed by my legal practice. Right. And, you know, when I returned to, I lived in Europe for several years. And when I returned, I, I, I decided to retool my legal practice toward the representation of people who actually needed it, you know? And so right now, um, after four years of what we call in America, the former guy, uh, <laughs> um, the asylum needs are are that much more you know crucial and urgent 
And so, yes, at times there's not a lot of sleep, but, um, you know, every once in a while you look at what you've done and you think, yeah, that wasn't so bad. Well, look, let's just talk about your, I mean, we're going to, we're circling around and we're going to come to the Dangerous Ideas book, but, um, you know, your previous book, Sex and Punishment, not a book, as I first thought, about, you know, S&M, but actually about 4,000 years of judging desire. And I can see the parallel with this book you know, dangerous ideas, this history, an extraordinary history of censorship. But I thought, let's t- we're going to talk about that and we're going to talk about, you know, the themes which come out of that. But let's just start off with a definition. I mean, what for you is a dangerous idea? Well, if you're asking Eric Berkowitz, I don't think there is a dangerous idea. I think ideas uh, can be hideous. Ideas can be hurtful. Ideas can be inflammatory. But uh, I, you know, in this case, I stand really closely with the sort of absolutist vision of censorship, where ideas, even if they're hideous, need to be aired, if only to be refuted. You know, but the 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 phrase "dangerous ideas" was really me sort of adopting, in the most general sense what censors and and people in society have felt. And so what is a dangerous idea when you don't ask me? A dangerous idea is one that rattles and challenges one's preconception of how the world is. Okay. Hmm. Right. So, so that could be on a political level. Uh, that could be on a social level. That could be on a personal level. I mean, c- censorship there's a very funny quote. I just found it. Uh, and it sort of, he sort of summarizes much of my book writing career. This is by a former editor of the Los Angeles Times, Phil Kirby, who, <laughs> who said, censorship is the strongest drive in human nature. Sex is a weak second. So I wrote two books about the intersection of sex and law, uh, you know, from the beginning to the present. That was sort of a five or six year project, because I really identified that sex was one of the sort of driving forces in social and political life. Well, you know, picking up on <laughs> Phil, Phil Kirby here, I think censorship, the urge to tell someone to shut up, the urge to try and silence someone because what they're saying hurts <laughs> or challenges. Okay, everything from the, pres- from the president of China censoring the, an image of Winnie the Pooh because everyone in China said that he looked like Winnie the Pooh to, you know, to blasphemy, everything. something that challenges, something that makes one un, un, uncomfortable, that sort of goes to who we are and how we want our society to be arranged, you know? Right. And so, I mean, further. so for you, the, so let's, and, you know, in terms of defining what censorship means, so censorship for you is a response to an idea which is considered usually by the powerful as dangerous, right? Yes, censorship has, I mean, the whole dynamics of censorship have changed massively over the years. And we are living in a period where there's even a new phase. Generally, the dynamics of censorship have been uh, those with authority, those with guns or police or the power to damn one to hell for life, someone with authority over another exerting that authority to either to silence or punish either a person or try almost entirely vainly to suppress that uh, idea. 
So, you know, and the targets have generally been society's outliers, heretics, artists, mm. you know, blasphemers, uh, nosy reporters, people who, who were vulnerable, you know. Uh, we now have a third player in censorship are people who don't have guns, but have um, actually more power than any dictator could have ever hoped for, which are the Internet companies. Yeah, right. Well, you know, this this book that you've written, I mean, it is an extraordinary survey of the subject and it's filled with fascinating, terrifying uh, anecdotes and stories. And for me, you know, very surprising stuff. I'll talk a little bit later about why it shook me a bit because I've just finished a book myself and I'm thinking now I've got to insert at least one additional paragraph having read uh, having read Eric uh, uh, Eric's book but I mean what's the where did it all begin I mean let's start with that we're going to end with where it's where it is at the moment where did it all begin in terms of your research you know what's what you know in how old is it censorship I think censorship emerged I mean again no one left a memo in this regard you know but I think that censorship from what I can glean through you know, pretty aggressive research is that censorship is really concomitant with language itself. Right. Because words and images have power. Words and images can wield power. I mean, many of the creation stories of societies, even the Christian, you know, put the word at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. In fact, to the Peruvians, to the we toto people of Peru, the word was before creation. So words are volatile and words were you, words and images have always been felt to be not only just signifiers of something else, but actually in and of themselves having influence. And so part, I think the real impulse of censorship, if we go back to the beginning, uh, are, is, is, humankind's urge to control language to prevent the calamities that the misuse of language and images could bring therefore you know the first two the first two commandments no blasphemy no words against god and no graven images because those are evil they, censorship is hard baked into our um, outlook on life because we, you know words are not simply like instructions to how to operate your blender they are they, they carry their own power and in fact of course you know there is a big part of the book as well which is about images so i mean it is this thing about words and which we and, and images there's another thing which i wanted to talk to you about as well in terms of culture which is also the kind of censorship of passion which i think maybe your your earlier book was about i mean certainly in the soviet union for instance, um, the area that I've kind of looked into. You know, one big thing which seemed to excite the censors was dancing. You know, the foxtrot, that kind of most innocent of moves, seemed to arouse a huge amount of ire amongst the Soviet ideologues like Maxim Gorky, etc. And that was, is that, that was a theme throughout as well, was it? The, the, the censorship of the kind of, in a way, the censorship of human passions or the attempts to control passions in a way or to marshal them in the service of ideology you, you know i would I, I i would want your input on this but i would surmise and i've heard that myself that for some, something about the, the of all the dances the foxtrot um mm. 
created such such consternation amongst the Soviets is because I think not only because it showed a certain limitlessness of of human uh, uh, expression, and by virtue of that, by virtue of people dancing together, holding each other, it's very sensual dance. Indicates that the state is somehow left out of the equation <laughs> when the state is trying to control every aspect of human life. That that you know so. Your, if your question is, you know, what is it about human passion itself that excites censorship? Is because I think power itself is extremely fragile. Okay, uh, and the even as as even when power is nearly absolute, and there is no reason for. Uh, for power to feel a certain challenge when people are 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 operating in a certain way that means that they're not you know existing under the rubric of that power somehow it becomes a challenge i mean the most extreme example of that has to be mao zedong uh in china during the cultural revolution when any aspect of human interest or of human preoccupation outside that of the worship of the state was censored. That would include pigtails. That would mm. include family photographs. Uh, the Red Guards would barge into houses and take family photographs off shelves and throw them away because that showed an interest in something other than Mao himself or the state. And so the fragility of power is itself a a very, very central theme of my book um, because I was just simply astounded at just how touchy power <laughs> is and just how little it has taken to create, um, you know, persecutions, prosecutions, suppressions. And I think in the current environment that we're in where we're always trying to, you know, cancel other expressions that challenge us or that mm. are offensive to us. We're really have taken the mantle of the touchiest uh, leaders of, you know, Days gone by. <laughs> yeah, you do talk about this. Why are we so touchy now? But that touchiness, I mean, there is also, you mentioned, I love your thing about, uh, you know, let's bring it close to home in the UK. Henry VIII decreed death for anybody who imagined his demise, right? I didn't quite. Un I mean, uh, it's one of your most what? brilliant inventions is the treason law from the 14th century. In, Come on, uh, just tell us more about that. It's just such a great story. In the late Middle Ages in England, you know, there was, of course, there's always been treason in one form or another. So the Brits, you know, had, the, you, we have common law, so it wasn't quite written down. And, and you know, around the 14th century, they, they uh, there was a, 1351, I think it was, there was a statute written, you know, the treason statute, which, which had this expression to compass or imagine the death of the king. This is probably one of the original thought crimes. Okay, right. Henry VIII right. picked up on it, and he, you know, he was a paranoid and he was brutal, and he was he, and so he pushed through interpretations and more statutes that if you so much as again imagined not only the death of the king but situations that were challenging to him, such as if you 
argued for the legitimacy of one of his past marriages, that became treasonous. <laughs> Everyone became so confused around him that his doctors, were, when he got sick, were afraid to pronounce him, you know, to say, Your Majesty, you're ill, because yeah. that might bring them <laughs> to the executioner. So the idea of a thought crime, the idea of an, a, a dangerous idea, the idea of thinking something that is a challenge to the state runs through, again, of course, Henry VIII was an extreme example, but England uh, dusts off, you know, dusted off that uh, statute and used it repeatedly, uh, particularly in the late 18th century. And, you know, my former president, Donald Trump, um, you know, was absolutely ready to condemn and jail anyone who imagined or thought or expressed thoughts against him, mm. regardless of whether it posed any kind of a tangible challenge. Well, I mean, he, he was a kind of, or is, I suppose, a kind of Henry VIII type figure in a way, isn't he? I mean, um, so that's not surprising so much there. The, uh, but this is the other thing about the book, you know, is, is that the same themes uh, repeat time and time again down the millennia i mean that description of henry VIII's, you know super touchiness uh, that anybody even imagines his demise but i mean it you know that issue with his doctors i mean that was repeated with stalin you know stalin you know probably would have may have survived that final stroke uh, but his doctors were too terrified to actually do anything about it, you know, because they didn't want they didn't want to be they didn't want to go in there and treat him in case they were then accused of killing him, you know. So it's that it's sort of he's killed by his own touchiness, and and that that whole thing about touchiness which you you bring in um, is a, another theme which runs through it from the beginning. And I think the other thing which is which you talk about is that it's all in vain somehow, isn't it? I mean, let's. Just tell us about that, because, you know, one of your theses is that censorship d does not work. And that's one of the reasons I think that you come down as an absolutist against it, right? Well, I mean, there was a kind of a minor thinker in the 19th century, a guy named Leslie Steffen, who was actually Virginia Woolf's father, I believe, um, you know, wrote an interesting essay that I brought up in the book, which is, you know, for censorship ever to work, uh, you actually have to go inside the minds of those that you're trying to censor. I mean, censoring an expression, censoring a book, censoring uh, a painting, destroying a church, you know, smashing a statue, uh, dictating the way something might be taught. Those are all, in effect, expressions of weakness, expressions of desperation, because when you destroy you know, a, a piece of expression, you're not destroying the idea, okay? It never works. In fact, it really creates the opposite effect. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's this cliche in the United States called banned in Boston, which means that for there was a period where everything was censored in Boston. The, 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 the neo-puritanical elite, you know, made things difficult. And the what's behind that expression is, I want it, you know? If something is banned, you want it. It creates what we call the Streisand effect. That 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 you know, Barbara Streisand once objected to an aerial picture of her picture of her villa on the beach, and by her making noise about it, everybody knew about it. You know, <laughs> and so it, it as soon as the Catholic Church came out with its list of forbidden books, which you know, included Gal before long included Galileo. 
<laughs> Catholic monks themselves drove up the price of his book, Dialogue on Two Worlds, because they went to get it. As soon as the printing press was invented, that's when the you know ocean of um, censorship laws began to you know pour forth from states and church. So publishers told their writers to write anything that would be forbidden. Why? Because it makes a lot more money. And somehow things that are forbidden, there's a business reason, and then there's the psychological reason. Oh, that must be some. They must be doing something right. The main French censor from the 19th century, uh, Malchaud, uh, himself said that anyone who reads only approved books are, are behind the times by at least a century. And what they did was they eventually stopped burning books in public because by doing so, they'd only managed to spike sales. I mean, almost continually with every anecdote that I tell, you know, I will talk about one book or another that was, you know, persecuted or destroyed in the, in the 17th century. And as I'm sitting here in my little dungeon writing my book, I go on the internet, uh, as you can, as everyone can, and I look for that book and kapow, it shows up. <laughs> right. it's, all, it's, it's very, very rare that a book is destroyed entirely. And it's almost never that an idea is 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 destroyed. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you have you, a very you, very very similar situation now with hate speech, where where there's this massive effort, particularly in Europe and less so here, but growing, to suppress expressions that are hateful or offensive. I guess on the idea that by doing so we're going to quell hatred, uh, it, it does not work. Yes. So, I mean, you've said this once transmitted an idea is not easily extinguished. And then and then also, you know, once it's out there and then this she's quite the Streisand effect. It's a great uh, it's a great phrase. Uh, yeah. Information becomes more popular by trying to ban it. Um, and that's a sort of ancient phenomenon, isn't it? So it's, that goes all the way back again. You know, in my kind of area, which is, you know, the forbidden music in the Soviet Union. That's, yeah. You just saw that played out time and time again. I mean, for instance, the um, the Soviet authorities, the kind of musical authorities, started to in the twenties to to publish a list of songs, specific songs that were it was forbidden to perform, and it started off as a kind of, you know, two or three sheets, uh, and by the end it was like a kind of old-fashioned telephone directory in thickness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it got bigger and bigger and bigger each year. <clears throat> so that became a recommended list of songs to obtain. Of course, it became it became the playbook, you know, in a way. Now, but the and of course, you know, and then people inventive Russians, extremely inventive or agile, as they would say, you know, were continually coming up with ways to circumvent the censor. And of course, maybe songs that wouldn't have been that popular became much more popular because they were forbidden, you know, the forbidden fruit thing. But also, I think that the whatever the authorities were attempting to do. Um, they kind of, in a way, made it more likely somehow, you know, because they, in doing so, in, say, forbidding popular culture, in this case, uh, these weren't particularly dangerous ideas. They were popular songs. But by doing so, they kind of delegitimized themselves, particularly, of course, because they were completely hypocritical and in, at their private functions would have people performing uh, those songs, you know. Really? Can of you, course, yeah. Like, like are, are, are we talking about 
songs like American Blues, or are we talking about the Beatles, or are we talking about... Um, so the, we're talking, I'm specifically talking in a way about, with these records, with the X-ray records, so um, the headline story, of course, is about jazz and rock and roll, Western stuff, so we've got this idea that, you know, we had the great stuff, the Soviet kids couldn't get it, and they wanted it, and that's true, okay, but actually the real story of those records, what I call Soviet soul music, is the forbidden Russian songs. The, the, a culture which had, its own culture had become forbidden. Songs made by emigres who'd, who'd fled after the revolution, but also songs that were written within the Soviet Union about real life there, songs which were written about the gulag life, songs which were written about criminality, and just, and actually ordinary stuff quite often. So songs it, that actually spoke to, the, to, the, to, to what people were experiencing. There were songs about people's real life, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and songs about suffering, songs about love, lust, fighting, passion, criminality, uh, songs about the ridiculousness of the Soviet system. Um, and of course, Isabella Yureva, who was a, a Soviet singer um, and extremely popular, um, her, her, her own um, repertoire, which was about 300 songs, um, got reduced to about five, I think, because she sang in a style called Russian Gypsy Tango, which is regarded as being too passionate. It roused the wrong kind of uh, yeah. emotions in young people. But she told a story about how the phone rang in the middle of the night and a voice on the end said, Comrade Yureva, there's a car waiting for you. You must get into it. And of course, you know, in the Soviet Union at that time, that was pretty much felt like a death sentence. She was terrified, yeah. obviously. Thought she was going to get taken off to uh, Lubyanka. But... Um, yeah, but in fact, actually what happened was is that she was taken to a party where there was Stalin and various other people in the Kremlin. Uh, there was another singer Astounding. there. Astounding. Uh, another singer there. And um, she was with uh, the head of the, one of the heads of the Communist Party before they went in, and he, he leant over to her and said, uh, Comrade Yureva, don't bother with the Soviet songs. Sing the gypsy romances. Uh, so you can imagine the situation that put her in. Because was it a trick? You know, was she being tested? Uh, but of course, she went ahead and sang them, and of course, that's what they wanted to hear. You know, they they loved that, and I think so. This ties into um, you know what it's you an talk. Incredible story that you just told. Yeah, it's and it's 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 it is an incredible story, and it's it's also uh, sort of symptomatic somehow of another big theme in your book, which you might say it's about class and class and censorship. Because, I mean, you know, there wasn't a class system as we know it in the Soviet Union, but there kind of was between the political class and the proletariat. So, uh, just in, as in Orwell, the inner party and the outer party. So, just talk to, to that, um, Eric, about that relationship between censorship and, and the class systems of the world. Yes, uh, that that was not something I expected, but that was sort of an observation that emerged as I, you know, plowed through all this material that given the fact that censorship often or more often than not doesn't work, meaning that either the pieces of expression or the expressions themselves don't die, there's been sort of an, an implicit uh, admittance of that. And so much censorship over the years has, has, has really been a question of channeling speech as much as it has been suppressing it, meaning right. that pieces of uh, speech, you know, books, pictures, et cetera, 
now we're going to get into dirty pictures uh, and everything else. Uh, are, 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 are sequestered by class, meaning that those with power generally will feel that what's out there is suitable for them, but not for others. And, and you know, that, that also goes with just straight suppressions of the press, you know, in trying to report on the ruling classes themselves. All this really started, you know, I, I can go on. I mean, it started really with the first Chinese emperor. Well, uh, tell us, tell us about him. Yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. I grew to really have a, a real sort of perverse affection for this guy. Uh, <laughs> Xi Xin Shi Huang, which I'm sure I'm butchering his name, unified China in the third century BC. Warrior, uh, you know, unified the seven kingdoms, weights and measures, you know, began to build the wall, a powerful leader, but hated horribly and was being and was being criticized, you know, massively by Confucian scholars and other scholars who, you know, said this is the dark age, there were better ages before. So what he he was paranoid uh, and was consumed with history that he was being compared with the history that preceded him. So what he did was he had his people gather up all the books of literature and poetry, philosophy, particularly Confucian philosophy that they that existed, kept it for himself, <laughs> and then destroyed the rest of it, and for good measure destroyed four hundred Confucian scholars. Meaning that that literature that he found dangerous, it was okay for him and the people he allowed it to see, but not for anyone else. Um, and the idea of you know uh, taking it to the you know semi-modern period, very very often you were talking about the proletariat. This is this this became a very very strong thing, particularly in England after the French Revolution in the very troubled years of the early 19th century, where there was, and in throughout the 19th century with all the revolution that was happening in Europe, a real major effort to keep literature and ideas that were thought to agitate the poorer classes, um, to keep it away from them. It, this just astounds me. There was a book called The Fruits of Philosophy which had nothing to do with fruit and nothing to do with philosophy. What it, <laughs> what it had to do with was having sex without creating uh, pregnancy. It was sort of an early birth control manual, what they called a marriage manual. Uh, they were common in the 19th century. And it had been you know, circulating for decades and decades in pricey editions and kind of you know, uh, for the use of upper middle class couples. Well. It, in 1877, it, this uh, George Bredlaw and Annie Besant brought it out in a cheap edition and were instantly prosecuted for obscenity. And the prosecutor called it lewd and filthy and depraved public morals. This is exactly the same book, okay? And Annie Besant said in trial, it's a horrible thing to put us in danger of prison for giving info to the poor, information to the poor, which, with, which may with impunity be given to the rich. And they lost, okay? Uh, but it was overturned on a technicality, but still this woman, Annie Besant, lost her cu custody of her child because she was found right. to be an un un unfit mother. You know, they weren't trying to suppress the book. They were trying to suppress the book for a certain class of people. 
throughout your book, or particularly in the sort of latter half of it, the uh, the UK comes out of it pretty badly. That was a bit of an eye, <laughs> a bit of an eye opener for me. Well, um, the the book was commissioned by the UK publisher, so I uh, I stressed a lot of UK. Yeah, it's quite funny, a lot of it, in retrospect, not funny at the time. Uh, and in fact, of course, one of the things which for me was is a bit of an eye-opener, you know, having just finished, as I said, my book on the um, forbidden music in the Soviet Union, of course, is that a lot of the stuff that was going on there, which in a kind of Cold War propaganda way, it's easy for all of us, me, you know, me too, to assume that it's all going on on that side of the Iron Curtain. Well, when I read your book, I realised that virtually everything that was going on there was going on here too, but in a much milder version, much more polite version. Obviously, when you've got a totalitarian state with the, the whole power of the state behind the security forces, you can brutalise people, you can ruin them, you can cart them away and imprison them, and you can shoot them, but that didn't go on here so much. But that this is Lenin um, saying, uh, talking here, every artist, everybody who considers himself an artist has the right to create freely according to his ideal, independent of everything. However, we are communists and we must not stand with folded hands and let chaos develop as it pleases. We must system systematically guide this process and form its result. Well, there, in essence, was the story of what was to happen, of course, because that systematic guiding turned into, um, you know, gulags and shooting people. Uh, and, of course, we kind of know that and, you know, already sort of thing. But I was quite surprised to read in your book, this is in 1938, um, a note to the police from a, a Home Office official who stressed the importance of not giving the impression that it was in any way acting as censors or have any power to ban a book. But, this is William Johnson Hicks, known as Jix, uh, promising strong enforcement against indecency, including Shakespeare's coarser passages, when published cheaply. To just pick up on your previous uh, thing about <laughs> the class thing, uh, and stated that these actions wouldn't fetter anybody's right to write what the spirit moves them to write. He claimed he was merely fulfilling his duty to carry out the law, taking pains to affirm, "I am not a literary censor." And it's the kind of it's exactly the same thing, isn't it, going on there? Um, you know, as you say, the double speakers, as Orwell would have called it, uh, claiming that it wasn't censorship, but of course it was, right? Yeah, I mean, you you just really made a number of my points, you know, quite succinctly, that, you know, very often even the subject of censorship itself is censored. I mean, right. it's very, very rare. Lenin was rather forthcoming, but as I understand it, free speech was guaranteed in the Soviet Constitution. Um, and right. free speech is, is guaranteed in the European Convention on Human Rights, but there's always a second paragraph, and it's always unless, you know? And right. and, and at least in the European Convention on Human Rights and in uh, Article 19, there's, there's always ringing endorsements of free speech unless it's a challenge to democracy or there's, it's a challenge to a good order society. Other than in the United States, which has you know, taken a rather absolutist view, although that's changing, um, there's always the reservation of right. The censorship in that definition is pre-approval. So you can write what you want. You can express what you want. You might have to take your lumps afterwards. You might be held <laughs> or your book might suppressed but that but that's not censorship that's simply enforcing a law for good order of society obscenity etc cetera, etc cetera. but you know that to me 
that kind of fine distinction uh, in the end doesn't really mean much for two reasons. One, a book can still be censored. And two, the idea that what you're writing will come under fire uh, from either the government, from the church, or from your peers, as is happening now in you know greater greater extent, it creates a self-censorship, creates, creates a, right. a, a, an inner repression of thought. I mean, why would you... Yeah. <laughs> produce something that is going to, in the end, right. you know, cause this kind of trouble. I, and, and, you know, I had that experience. I had some experiences in this book trying to, you know, and I'm sure you do with your writing. We try and resist it, but you think who's going to be offended? Yep. How will this get me in trouble? Will this make my mother ashamed of me? You know, on and on and on. But I mean, so Jix was being very blithe about the whole thing. And, uh, and in, from, from what I see, uh, Deceptive. So even in the US, right, which is, you know, the home of free speech, but you, you, you talk about this thing called the Sedition Act. I never heard of it, but it's, you know, where it's a crime to willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of the government of the United States. That's an act, isn't it, right? This is this. Yeah, that was this from is, World War One. yeah. Uh, right. The, the key word there is abusive, because this gets to, uh, to what we were talking about with touchiness, okay? that America's going into World War I. There wasn't a particularly um, huge groundswell of support for us getting into that war three years into it. And so in order to sort of quell dissent, of which there was much, uh, you know, so I forgot how many millions of Americans at that point were native German speakers. You know, right. um, they, the government took extreme measures, not only against speech that might interfere with the draft or with conscription or might actually cause a riot, but with anything that is abusive to not only the war effort, but our former government. America has done that quite a bit. I mean, right. seven or eight right. years after we adopted the uh, First Amendment, this is at the end of the 18th century, we adopted a very similar act, the Sedition Act, which made pretty much all the sense um, a crime. And so the, you know, America of the last, you know, four or five decades, um, I think is probably unique in history because we've come so far so fast. You know, there were, in my book, I, I document thousands of people during and after World War One, often immigrants, German speakers, Jews, you know, uh, socialists, who were who were simply prosecuted and put in jail without any you know, without a lot of fuss, uh, because they merely by their existence or what they said, you know, posed some kind of ideological challenge to the United States. Right. Well, we've come quite far from that. You know, in the '60s, we've adopted the Supreme Court adopted the current absolutist view, which basically said that this is a good thing. Mm. It's good to criticize the government. This is healthy. And you know what else? It's good to offend one another because that kind of what's the word they used? Verbal cacophony uh, is 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 that that uh, spirited let's call it, dialogue um, is good for society for clearing out ideas, for airing them, and letting the better ones rise to the top. Well, that is you know that that environment that I grew up in. Uh, I think is quite unique in human history. And I'm not sure how much longer it's going to last. Well, you know, that's a great part as well of what you talk about, which is, you know, a subject close to the heart of this 
programme, which is the, the effect of counterculture and censorship, right? So those countercultural ideas, it really made that Thomas Paine thing about it's important to express all ideas and dissent for the good of everybody in a kind of psychotherapeutic way, you could even say, culturally speaking, is to get it out there. And of course, that's a big theme for you too, isn't it? Is, is that apart from the fact that censorship doesn't work, etc., um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's better to have it out there. I want to come back to that whole thing about the relationship between censorship and free speech. But just to pick up on what you were talking about earlier in terms of the Sedition Act, you also have said that crackdowns censorship in this case, almost inevitably happen when societies confront overwhelming crisis. Now, the First World War is kind of in a way where that thing got going, the Sedition Act, and and of course wartime has been a time, you know, particularly in the 20th century, hasn't it, where all sorts of societies have exercised censorship for, inverted commas, the common good, right? I mean, this is, you again, quoting you, talking about Prime Minister of ours, Lloyd George, if people really knew, uh, the war will be stopped tomorrow. But of course they don't know and can't know. The correspondents don't write and the censorship would not pass the truth. What they do send is not the war, but just a pretty picture of the war with everybody doing gallant deeds. And you also talk, I'd never heard of this, absolutely fascinating stuff. You talk about these, uh, this f- the field service postcard known as the whiz-bang or the, the quick fizzer. Is it quick fizzer or quick fixer? Uh, which, this is a, a sort of letter, pre-printed letter, which has pre-printed remarks about a soldier's health, whether he was leaving the front, whether the addressee's latest letter had arrived... But he was only allowed to strike out whichever lines didn't apply. Nothing could be added, you say, that left no room for remarks such as, I've been blinded by gas, or my commanding officer is a sadist. <laughs> I mean, I'd never, I know, of course, I've got to go and get hold of one of these whiz bangs. But, uh, um, but it, it's, so that's it, isn't it, Eric, is that wartime is where this stuff gets super sharp, it gets sharp to the point where where it cuts through literally everything. I mean, that was Lloyd George talking. <clears throat> he was on. He was ruminating on exactly what his own government was doing. The British censorship during World War One was uh, pretty much astounding. Uh, there were thousands and thousands of people hired to to sort through mail to make sure that the truth didn't come out there 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 were there were you know pictures of the war dead were barred also in the united states um you know there there there's this enormous if we talk about touchiness there's a real sense during wartime of just straight out vulnerability mm. and and the the loyalty of the populace is never assured um and the loyalty of the fighting forces is never assured we always in this country, in this country being mine during Vietnam, uh, during our various Iraq adventures, uh, there's this impulse, this compulsion. It's it's almost like a, a reflexive reaction by governments to start to suppress news that is truth that doesn't work or that doesn't fit the program. I mean, it's a cliche. Truth is the first casualty of war. Well, truth really is the first casualty of war. America is probably the worst in this regard. And when we go back to, you know, what we did to the Japanese by bombing them twice, when we, you know, there's, of course, an argument whether we needed to, but we did. So then we occupied Japan. Uh, The Japanese were, you know, shocked. Uh, We occupied Japan for years afterwards, and 
during that time, a lot of a number of Japanese people were trying to write about what they had experienced. Right. And there was a book called, I think it was uh, The Bells of Nagasaki, written by someone who was there and uh, a survivor. And he wrote graphically about what he had experienced. Well, we, the American military authorities suppressed that book for two or three years. And in fact, why? Because they thought it would make the Japanese um, discontent, as if they needed this book to make them discontent. We, we, we firebombed them for years, and we, we actually flattened two of their major cities. And it was only allowed, finally, through, by the American th authorities in Japan, if a chapter was added describing Japanese atrocities in the Philippines. And so this kind of... Um, mm. Wartime and post-wartime and trying to keep your narrative straight is, you know, and for the, this whiz-bang that you're talking about, yes, that absolutely circumscribed what soldiers can report home. And it left no room for truth. It really only was, it was a relentlessly cheerful little thing. It was one of the first forms you know, these horrible things that we've lived with our whole lives that people have had to fill out. You say, of course, uh, quoting Orwell, you know, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they don't want to hear. Another great or, or well quote. Um, yeah. We're going to have to whiz through, uh, Eric. And, I, and there's so much in the book. I mean, I, I loved your thing about the fact that the French censors uh, didn't only bend words they considered offensive, but they, they considered work they, that they thought was boring. <laughs> Or low quality, because that's another whole thing about aesthetic censorship, isn't it? I mean, and you talk about Eric Honecker, you know, the leader of East Berlin. He was a fiddler, you know, he, he fiddled with other people's works. Stalin, again, another one, you know, it wasn't just the kind of political stuff, but he would sort of watch a film and, you know, and then sort of, you know, make comments to the director about, you know, character changes and all sorts of stuff. You know, he couldn't keep his hands off things, you know, whenever it, something was in front of him, he had to fiddle with it. But um, you talked um, about, you know, there's the whole relationship between freedom of speech and censorship. Talk, talk a little bit about, or just talk about your opinion on that. I, you know, I, I, I take... I think like everyone else, I take several positions, you know, um, I've, I'm a sentient person and there are, there are, you know, truths and beliefs that I hold dear. And when I hear things or see things that, that, that rattle, that challenge that, or that insult that, or that I feel insult my cherished ancestors, you know, uh, I'm, I identify very strongly with being Jewish. And when I hear anti-Semitic stuff uh, or Holocaust denial, things like that, it upsets me. And there's an impulse in me to say, to want to stop that. Uh, but then the, the better me uh, realizes that, that that's not, you know, for all the reasons that we've just described, you know, futile and wrong. And so I think, you know, in, in a period now where we are very, the, People out of power, that is, you know, people, students, professors, participants in the internet are, you know, calling out and, you know, effectively silencing others. Um, I find that to be really, really, really dangerous. I think we're reverting. One of the things about censorship is every time issues come up, people approach them as if they've happened for the first time. And in the UK particularly, and in America particularly, we've lost the appreciate because we've grown up with it we've lost the appreciation of just how valuable 
open dialogue is. I mean, you in the UK are now about to pass a law uh, that puts a duty of care on the internet platforms to, to bar the larger ones, speech that is what's called lawful but awful, speech that, that, that might be legal under the law but still might cause someone, quote, psychological harm. Well, the notion of harm is a very, very fluid one. So where do I stand personally? I stand as injured as anyone else by words that hurt me or images that offend me. But I've, I've spent the last two, three years working on a project that tells me that that's the price hmm. that you pay to live in an open society. I don't mind walking around with a rock in my shoe, you know, if it means that I can walk at all. You know, you mentioned earlier too, in terms of self-censorship, because I'm, I'm guilty, you know, it's like, uh, we you know, we live in this age of cancel culture and deplatforming, you know, mm. <clears throat> as well as all the stuff that you, you mentioned then, um, you know, trying to pass crazy laws about massively subjective things like harm, etc. But, um, you know, I find myself, um, you know, not saying things, not asking certain questions, or certainly not in a public arena, because do I want to face and, you know, get involved in all the stuff that that's going to mean? So, and of course, that is, I think, in terms of, say, George Orwell's vision of the future versus Aldous Huxley's vision of the future in Brave New World, it seems that kind of Huxley won out in a way, didn't he? You know, the Soviet Empire fell, which is Orwell's vision. Um, whereas Huxley's kind of thing was the soft power, you know, the power of information. And of course, self-censorship is possibly in a way the most effective type of censorship, is it not? Uh, agreed, agreed, and agreed again. Because they, and it's not just self-censorship. I mean, John Stuart Mill, I talk about, it's, you know, not a great length, but I touch on him that there's the censorship of the state, but there's also the tyranny of society itself, which he called it the tyranny of the, of the majority, but it's also the tyranny of the loudest characters. I mean, when you're going to lose your position in a university for something that you've written, right. when you're right. going to lose, when you're going to have your admission revoked, because of something that you said maybe five, 10 years ago, and you're going to lose your job because of something, because, you know, what's interesting is, as I said, this notion of harm, you know, what is harm? Is the president, Apple just fired one of their top executives uh, for a book that he had written years ago about, his, about the tech revolution, and he made some sexist comments in the book, mm -hmm. whatever. Uh, they, they, they weren't hateful. They were, they were just indelicate. Let's put it like that. Right. Uh, and it immediately, I mean, the book had been out. It had actually been on the bestseller list years ago. And, uh, a number of Apple employees, you know, gathered together and signed a petition and said, we can't exist with this person here in this company. <laughs> okay. Are they harmed or is that impulse to get rid of this guy? And Apple did get rid of him. Um, right. It was a, the book that he wrote was called Chaos Monkeys. Uh, the, 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 is that act of censorship, that that suppression of this person in his job, was less a question of harm as much as it is a statement of an of an of an act of faith. I don't believe in sexism. By getting rid of this guy, you're not getting rid of sexism. Okay, what right. you're getting rid of is this person in his job, and so. Um, I think where I stand is that we sort of need to stop and recalibrate and, 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 and 
and and do some reflection on on what it is to listen to other ideas. You know, what we're seeing as well is that people rushing forward, either corporations rushing forward and sacking people before their their brand gets damaged as they perceive it, or you yeah, know, when when somebody gets uh, you know publicly held up you know via social media they're them immediately rushing out and apologizing and you know going into treatment and all this sort of stuff it's <laughs> it is actually right it's a little bit like the sort of soviet show trials you know where uh, uh, people are flinging themselves on the floor and uh, telling you how wrong they've been there's so much gray and nuance in it in when we are sort of seeking black and white definite you know angels and demons and stuff and is there anything that you can you sort of concluded by doing that survey, uh, history of censorship through the ages, any kind of commonality or themes that run through it all that you can kind of like finish up with? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one of the purposes of the book was not only to delve into all these things, but also to tell, to tell human stories. And mm. there's, there's, there's nothing more interesting to me. And hopefully the book, which is not written for professors, or it's written for you know the the audience of this show who are just interested in how and how humanity conducts itself and how we think and so you know one of the key purposes of the book was just to uh enlighten amuse uh inform and caution us uh that some of the impulses that we're feeling might be, you know, good for the short term, but not quite good for <laughs> the long term. And so, you know, the marketplace of ideas is a very, very uh, dynamic place. And we're in a situation where we're creating systems where the only where we're getting steered toward the, uh, the frozen food and candy aisles much more than the right. <laughs> healthy stuff. So, you know, what is dangerous ideas? It's, it's yet another collection of uh, you know, fascinating and sometimes disturbing human foibles. It's a rollicking read, actually, because it's full of human Thank stories. You. Stories, um, And actually, of course, before we finish, we should just turn briefly to the subject of images, because that's another big part of it, too. You talk about iconoclasm, and of course, that runs all the way through from in artwork, in paintings, of course, in films. We have decided to ban certain images, I mean, officially ban them, uh, from consumption. There's a difference, isn't there, between the production of images and the broadcast of images or, or words. So where are you on that, say, with when it comes to pornography and the restriction of, of, of certain images which have probably caused harm in their creation? Let's put it like that way. There are images that have, that have become poisonous in and of themselves, such as the swastika, or you know uh, other things and so we've always had this idea from the beginning that certain images are infested with evil spirits you know and or certain images have symbolic value that are that that is wrong as far as the suppression of pornography you know unless there's you know underage people involved i'm not really for that because i think it just simply channels it in the wrong sense you know, uh, it channels, it's more of a class-based censorship. My sense of it, of my sense of images is that they can often have a much more immediate and visceral impact than words can because you don't, you, you need a lot less thinking to absorb them. Right. But just for that reason, you know, I don't think that suppressing the swastika uh, has any good effect on suppressing Nazism or suppressing white, 
supremacy. There's always a cost to suppression. The ideas don't go away. And when we, when we shove them underneath the rug, they just fester. And, and often they become forbidden fruit in themselves. What are you going to do next? Well, I've got to finish up all these refugee cases uh, that are overwhelming me right now. And, and, uh, but the next large writing project, uh, it will probably, it, something will most likely grow out of this project. Uh, there's two or three ideas that I'm, that I'm cooking on, or I might just simply move on to write about asylum and refugees and some of the stories that have come out of that. There's a lot that I've learned and seen that, that, that hasn't been reported. Right, right. Well, listen, um, Eric, thank you so much and for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. And it's talking a pleasure. And talking about dangerous ideas and the book. I wanted to sort of leave you with a sort of little gift. I thought you might enjoy this in terms of the overall theme of the book and the fact that, you know, censorship doesn't work and it often has the opposite effect, etc. So this is Maxim Gorky. He's talking about jazz music in 1928 in Pravda, the state uh, organ of news. There are rumblings, wails and howls like the smarting of a metal pig. The shriek of a donkey or the amorous croaking of a monstrous frog. Bestial cries are heard, neighing horses, wild screaming, hissing, rattling, wailing, moaning, cackling. The insulting chaos of insanity pulses to a throbbing rhythm. Listening to this screaming music for a few minutes, one involuntarily imagines an orchestra of sexual maniacs, led by a man stallion beating time with an enormous phallus. The monstrous bass belches out English words. A wild horn wails piercingly, calling to mind the cries of a raving camel. A drum pounds monotonously, a nasty little pipe tears at one's ears. A saxophone emits its quacking nasal sound. Fleshy hips sway and thousands of heavy feet tread and shuffle. The music of the degenerate ends finally with a deafening thud. All right, so that makes me want to go out and play some jazz. Exactly. Oh, really? Is that what you say about jazz? I think I'm going to go buy some Ellington records right now. <laughs> I mean, is there anything more guaranteed to get young people interested in jazz than that? A man stallion beating time with a phallus? Uh, I want to hear that, yeah. <laughs> you also can't help thinking, because it's a wonderful piece of writing, actually, you can't help thinking that secretly he was a fan, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he was paying attention. Uh, <laughs> what a fabulous quote. That's it. So, listen, Eric, we look forward to the book coming out here. And I do Thank recommend you. it, actually, as a tremendous... I mean, apart from the fact that it's, it's about a deeply important subject, actually, it is a collection of wonderful, as you said, disturbing, moving, and often quite funny stories. Thanks, Eric. I appreciate it. There we have it. You can check out uh, this book, Dangerous Ideas, and Eric's other work at his website, ericberkowitz.com. That's Eric with a C, Berkowitz with a K. And the book is published by Penguin Random House. Random Penguin, I think, as they're calling themselves these days. I don't know about you, but I mean, I felt, I felt sort of educated by that uh, conversation, but also relieved, strangely. It kind of brought a bit of light into a... A very sort of muggy, foggy area for me. And another episode in the Bureau of Lost Culture. You can check out all our episodes uh, at bureauoflostculture.com and of course now on all the major podcast providers. If you listen to it via Apple, leave us a review, would you? 
and a five-star review, of course. And um, Uncensored. And we will see you, hear you, next time for more Tales from the Other Side. I'm Stephen Coates. 